Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court warns against political attacks on judicial independence. He's really looking at what's happening in the United States, what's happening to some degree in Canada, with people questioning exactly you know, what the role of these institutions are, who are the people who sit on these institutions, uh, do they really represent the interests of Canadians, and I think he's really committed in showing that in the comments he's made. The public safety minister isn't ruling out the possibility of a national handgun ban. We've explicitly and specifically not targeted law-abiding firearms owners because uh, those who currently own and uh, operate handguns safely and store them safely are not at all targeted by this legislation. And could other regions of Canada follow suit as British Columbia prepares for the decriminalization of small amounts of some drugs? It will depend because jurisdictions across the country will have to apply. And if they apply and fulfill the criteria, yes. It's Monday, June the 6th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer, and the host of Primetime Politics. Good morning, Peter. Morning, Mark. So, Richard Wagner, or Richard Wagner, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, did something unusual. He, he, you know, first of all, Chief Justices don't do a lot of speeches and interviews and don't talk publicly about, certainly about politics, uh, very often at all. Um, but uh, he said he was concerned about potential political attacks on judicial independence. Uh, He kind of issued a warning. He talked about, uh, you know, what he observed when he was in the United States. And and obviously, you know, this comes at an interesting time. We've got a conservative leadership race going on, which we'll talk more about in a moment, where there are uh, there are strongly worded rebukes of of institutions like the Bank of Canada, for example. Um, so there, there's obviously a climate here that the Chief Justice is detecting and responding to. Yeah, I think Richard Wagner, if you look back at uh, the time that Richard Wagner, uh, Richard Wagner, has spent, uh, you know, on the court, he, he's really been sort of committed to uh, a level of openness in the court. He really wants it to be closer to the people. He's talked about taking it on the road. They've been on the road. They're going on the road. Um, and I think he's really about sort of trying to, you know, preempt sort of attacks on the court uh, as a sort of closed society and, a, and something that people don't understand. He's actively been working for a number of years, Mark, to try and open up uh, the business of the Supreme Court, introduce it to Canadians. Uh, he arrived in the court with that sort of attitude. He's he's carried it on as the Chief Justice. And I think he's, he's really looking at what's happening in the United States, what's happening to some degree in Canada, with people questioning exactly, you know, what the role of these institutions are, who are the people who sit on these institutions, uh, do they really represent the interests of Canadians. And I think he's really committed in showing that in the comments he's made to say, look, I'm going to get ahead of people who think uh, that, you 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 uh, you know for the purpose of discussion you could dismiss a judge on the Supreme Court of Canada because you think they're out of touch with Canadians they don't represent Canadians he's really trying to you know uh, explain to Canadians and open up uh, to Canadians exactly how the court comes to its decisions the kinds of things they consider the role they play in you know the Canadian fabric with a view of uh, trying to head off. Uh, you know, attacks, questioning whether, you know, it plays a valuable role, and clearly it does. And he's really trying to 
separate for Canadians, you know, trying to make make the case for the difference between politics and the judiciary and the independence of the judiciary saying, you know, you're going to want us. You're the people you want, you know, we're the, we're the people you're going to want when it comes time to hear your case, uh, where, you know, we draw a very hard line between political interference and the role we play as the final arbiter of, of judicial cases in Canada. And, you know, uh, selling the importance of that to Canadians saying, you know, if, if, it, if, if you had to deal with this, you would want some, you know, an institution like us. Uh, to be the, the you know the, the, the final arbiter of uh, the, you know uh, people challenging uh, interests or things that are important to you, uh, keep it separate from politics. Make sure we don't uh, have politics infiltrating it. And he's really trying to make that case, and it's probably an important case to put in front of Canadians at a time when a lot of institutions are being questioned. Yeah. All right, let's talk more about the Conservative leadership race. Uh, there, the uh, deadline for memberships uh, to be acquired or sold uh, in time for those members to vote in the leadership uh, is, uh, has now passed, and, and there was, there was a, a, quite a lot of messaging around that over the weekend, around who signed up how many members. We haven't been able to independently verify any of the numbers that the candidates' campaigns are touting. But what do you, what did you pick up from all of that? Well, the, the, just the overall number. Uh, the parties, you know, the, we, we'd heard that it was going to be 350,000, then it was 400,000. Now they're talking about 600,000 uh, new existing renewals uh, of memberships taken out to be able to have a say in the election of the next uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I mean, the number is pretty staggering. You know, it's it's probably impressive on any scale, just for sheer volume. Uh, the numbers of people who've, who've signed up to say they they want a part in deciding the next leader. Uh, two things. You and I talked about this last week, and I'm hearing more and more conversations around people who have taken out memberships with a view of, uh, and they're not they're not uh, conservatives, and they've said as much. They but they they've taken out memberships to be able to influence the race and. Uh, more and more, of the uh, the people I'm hearing have taken out memberships. Uh, want to take out memberships with a view of voting for somebody other than than Pierre Polyev. But the Polyev camp says that he signed up, you know, around 300,000 additional members. So if the total is 600,000, he's got half of them. Um, you know, that's a story to watch. Uh, but you and I have talked about this before, Mark. At the, at the end of the day, it's how do you, and that's the next process from now till September is how do you convert the people who have bought memberships into people who vote for you. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of camps can sell memberships, and the Charest camp says they've sold enough to win. The Brown camps, uh, camp says they've sold enough to win. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you've only sold enough to win if all the people you sold them to come out and vote for you, yeah. and that you have more people showing up than who vote for other candidates in the race. So there's, uh, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of runway between now and September 10th, and a lot of interesting stories to watch unfold here uh not you know uh not the least of which is okay who sold the most memberships great uh how do you convert the memberships into support and that's the thing to watch yeah uh, the elections are won uh by based on who shows up and votes uh and that's the the critical thing it's not how many memberships or eligible voters or whatever it's who actually votes so yeah, exactly uh, so right. anybody buy you know and this we, we see this all the time in canada that people buy 
by memberships. They, uh, you know, they they uh, they are eligible to vote. And, you know, the recent uh, election in Ontario is a good example. Look how low the voter turnout was, even though so many people had uh, the right to vote. And in you know leadership elections, there's this frenetic. Um, action involved in, in selling memberships and it's go, 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 you know, to the cutoff. But a lot of people, you know, uh, history's taught us that a lot of people buy memberships and leadership races and then never go on to vote. I yeah. mean, they do it uh, for a friend, they do it for an organizing uh, committee that's, you know, part of a candidate's, you know, campaign and they do it. Yeah, yeah okay, I'll buy one, I'll do this, I'll do that. Uh, you really have to convert them and that's, that's the key and that'll, you know, Will uh, we'll play a, a large, large role in determining who actually wins at the end of the day. Who can convert whatever they sold into actual votes? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's turn quickly to a couple of other stories, uh, Peter. Um, the public safety minister Marco Mendicino is not ruling out the possibility of a national handgun ban, saying all options are on the table. Uh, he was speaking in an interview with CTV on the weekend. Um, what, what do you, where do you see this issue going? And it is, uh, it's obviously top of mind because of events in the United States. Uh, and, and it's also one uh, that, as we've talked about before, has political implications in Canada. Yeah. I, you know, it, um, it's, it's this incremental movement, I think, uh, you know, that the government is now leading in terms of, uh, you know, more and more restrictions on uh, gun ownership uh, in in this country, uh, you know, with a, not a ban, and, and you touched on a mark, could the government eventually have a nationwide ban? Uh, that may be well where, he- where we're headed, but, in you know, the, the initial step is to say, okay, we're, we're going to freeze it, and it doesn't, you know, preclude the possibility of municipalities introducing their own, you know, ban at the local level. So the government's left itself all kinds of options here, which is to lead lead the way with a freeze um, on you know handgun uh, purchases, transfers, ownership. Um, you know, and the critics have, have pointed out that's not that's not going to start you know stop violent crime. You know, the the, the bad guys don't say, oh, uh, we were going to go commit a handgun crime tonight, but they, oh, they've introduced a freeze on on handguns, so let's not. So that's not a thing. So it really becomes a conversation about, you know, putting out there a first step for the federal government. I think that's the strategy: is to let's let's put a a freeze and see if what kind of take up there is on it. Always with the option to say, if the if the take up is there, then the government can be seen to leading the next movement. You know, the next phase, which would be to say, okay, there's there's an appetite to make this uh, more extensive, to broaden it. So yeah, let's we'll go for the full ban because we've seen the support for the freeze and uh, perhaps bans instituted at the local level uh, and in some cases the provincial level, although that seems less likely. And the government's left itself the option of of being able to ratchet up uh, the approach they've taken by starting where they have. All right. And finally, uh, some interesting discussion and debate happening across the country as British Columbia prepares for the decriminalization of small amounts of possession of some illicit drugs. Uh, there are other places in the country that are now looking at this and and saying maybe we should consider this too, including the mayor of Saskatoon, uh, who spoke on the weekend in an interview with CBC. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about this? Is, is this something that... Uh, we could see in other jurisdictions before too long. I think so. And again, it's, it's you, you know, there, there, 
of course, nothing is is devoid of of politics, and this is another uh, issue that's not. So, you know, the government, federal government's decided, okay, we're we're going to start with British Columbia, where the, the problem is the most acute, and say we'll we'll give them an exemption to the existing, uh, you know, um, uh, laws around hard drugs, and we'll we'll offer decriminalization to allow them to deal with the situation in BC. And we've already seen uh, other municipalities coming forward to say, okay, you know, this is something we've been considering as well. But uh, on the other side, you've got a lot of the advocates, you know, including we saw this past week in the House of Commons, the NDP had uh, essentially a, a, a private member's bill that would have taken uh, the the health-based approach uh, to, you know, uh, you know, the problems with opioid use. Uh, across the country, uh, but that bill failed, and has, uh, that motion failed, and has comments. But there's there's a lot of pressure on the federal government to say, look, if if it's good enough for BC, it's good enough for every other municipality fighting the same issue. But the federal government seems to be taking its lead on this. There was a, a, a massive push from British Columbia to, to make this happen. It doesn't seem to be quite as intense from other parts of the country to make it happen. So, you know, this is, again, one of those cases where the federal government takes step one, which is to essentially pilot project uh, decriminalization of hard drugs, street drugs um, in British Columbia, and then see what kind of uh, push take up there might be from other municipalities. It's less, you know, politically, I guess, dangerous for the federal government to uh, to be seen to be answering a, a a request and a need from a province or municipality than it than it is to be seen to imposing it as a sort of blanket approach across the country. Uh, and you know, the prime ministers talked about this. There, are, you know, when you when you decriminalize, you need the supports in place to to make that work. And not every municipality has those supports in place, but. If it started in BC, the thing to watch for next is okay. Who else? Who else is ready to uh, to go that route with the right supports in place? And then you have a federal government that that is seen to be following uh, and responding to requests for action rather than imposing the action. All right, great stuff, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Always great to talk to you. We'll talk again. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. Our mandate's pretty clear. I set our mandate for the last four or five weeks, and it's going to be very clear to the people what we uh, need to do in this province. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Robin Sears asks if Doug Ford will slide back into his old populist mode or continue evolving and building his legacy. Sears writes... Few of us change our convictions, beliefs, or behavior as adults. Fewer still, politicians. But sometimes a profound shock or crisis can jolt us into a new pattern and new insights. Now, Doug Ford has four years to lay the foundations of a more appealing, more enduring legacy on health, housing, and a sustainable, prosperous province. We could see an Ontario government that more often partners with Ottawa, labor, and civil society, rather than acting as a sloganeering corporate lapdog. It will be fascinating to watch which path Ford takes. In the National Post, Raymond J. D'Souza considers the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and the future of the monarchy in Canada. D'Souza writes, 
A jubilee is about a person more than the institution. The latter does not have jubilees, it just endures until it doesn't, as the other great dynastic houses of Europe have discovered. Now, serenity reigns on all fronts. Prince Charles formally proved last month that he could read the Queen's speech without interposing his own words, an apt metaphor for what will be required of him as king. Longevity has proved more powerful even than the legend makers. Duty has proved more enduring than indulgence. And the future of the Queen of Canada and her descendants looks bright. In the Hamilton Spectator, Ian Madsen makes the case for closing or selling off Via Rail. Madsen writes, By any criteria, Via Rail is not a good investment, even under unrealistically favorable assumptions. The federal government should rigorously examine this charitably designated enterprise, then aim it toward one of two fates, sale or liquidation. There must be a better use of taxpayers' money than keeping Via Rail a chronically bad investment. Now here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will meet with the President of Chile. He will also make an announcement and meet with the media along with the President and Minister of Women Marcy Ian. The two leaders will then meet with students at an Ottawa high school where they will be joined by Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will attend question period, followed by a meeting with a delegation of leaders from the Canadian Muslim community. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, June the 6th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.